Well, good morning, and turn to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, first of all, as usual, I have questions. The Old Testament declares that kings and created divine beings and even the nation Israel are called sons of God. In the Greco-Roman context into which John writes the gospel, declared emperors as sons of God. So what is so unique about the gospels, especially the gospel of John, when he comes along claiming that Jesus is the son of God? How is that different from the other Jewish expectations of a son of God being either a good person or a created divine being? Better bring me that other microphone. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Hello. And turn it up till it's comfortable. All right. Good. Okay. Ooh. It's singing back a little bit. Just bring it down a tiny bit, and then I think we'll be good. Okay. So, um, as we come to this opportunity to John's gospel, we have to ask those questions. Why is John's calling him the son of God? Why is that special? Why is it different? You know, why is it different than Jesus just being a created divine being or, or something like a Roman emperor, you know, a great person who's been highly exalted or the claims of other religions? And you can see these are important questions because to this very day, we can go out the doors of our church here and through our neighborhoods and we will find people who say those very things. They'll say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He was a son of God in the sense that he was a very good person. He was a good teacher. He was a good leader. He was sent by God. He represented God. In all these ways, he could be called a son of God. Well, we're going to clear that up today and hopefully give you opportunity to be able to explain to your friends who will agree that Jesus is the son of God, but will not agree in the fact that he was fully divine, that he is God himself. And they'll agree that maybe he is the son of God, but that he is nothing in particular special, and that all paths lead to God and that any religion can do. Well, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 will cure us of those problems. I first of all want to bring to your remembrance uh, the fact that we looked at, we began this whole journey in John chapter 1, and uh, in verses uh, or in John chapter 20, rather, verses 30 to 31. And we look there, and John concludes his gospel and gives us the purpose of it by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you see, according to John's purposes, is that Son of God was crucial, a crucial element in the the kind of faith, the kind of believing that leads to eternal life. And throughout the gospel, he weaves the ideas of him being the Christ and being the Son of God together in such a way that the two concepts are inseparable. And so we have to understand what he means by bringing this idea of the Son of God. And we go to John chapter 1, and in his introduction, in his prologue, we already looked at the fact he introduces him as the Word. He introduces him as the true light. And we looked at the significance of those and how, uh, how much that elevates Jesus Christ. And now we're going to look at John chapter 1, verse 14. 
So in John chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 14. And here at verse 14, we have the Word becoming flesh. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father God, into your hands, we commend the reading of this scripture that you will do with it what you wish to accomplish. We pray that you'll send your spirit to give us understanding and guidance, and Lord, help us to be open to the message that your word has for us today. Amen. Okay, so John uses a word here twice, and it's found in both 14, verse 14 here of chapter 1, and it's also found in verse 18. You can see how I have highlighted those for your help. And he does this for a very good reason. Now, all throughout the gospel, and even in the other gospels, occasionally, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. So let's begin first by by talking about what does that mean that he's the Son of God? How do we understand this from the gospels? And we're going to look at both the Jewish context and at the uh, Greco-Roman context. In the Jewish context, it it very simply meant this, um, that the the ways in which the Old Testament used it to refer sometimes to kings, to refer sometimes to heavenly beings, and to refer sometimes to Israel. And by the time Jesus came around, some of the Jewish people were using this word to speak of a simply righteous person. You know, if someone did right by the law, was upright and respected in the community, they might be called a son of God. The people of God, after the restoration, was, were also thought of as the sons of God because they understood God was going to do a great restoration to Israel, was going to bring uh, the enemies to an end, was going to establish his righteous throne forever, and at that time then they would become known as the sons of God. And then another way they used it was in this, in this sense of who this person would be that would come and bring this age in, this Messiah that would come and eventually bring all judgment and bring the ruling and everything. And they would refer to him, just a few of them, as a son of God. So that's the context in which John writes. And John also writes into this Greek context, context this Roman era, of the Roman Empire, and that term was used in the Roman Empire of certain Roman rulers and or their children once they were recognized as divine. I don't know if you knew that, but after a Roman emperor would pass away, or sometimes even while he was still living, the Senate would get together and they would say, you know, the emperor's really great. In fact, he's so great, we think that, that he's a god, or we think he's a son of God. What do you all think? Now, you're a member of the Senate, of whom the uh, Roman emperors often targeted for elimination when necessary. What are you going to say? You're going to say, well, of course, okay. And they'll say, okay, fine, it's unanimous then. He's a son of God printed on the money. 
And sure enough, they did. That they would call their Roman emperors sons of God, or they would call them Lord, speaking of them as divine. And so by calling Jesus the Son of God, John immediately brings into the conversation here about Jesus. He says, okay, you Jews, you say these things about the Son of God. Yeah, bring that in. Yeah, I'm talking about a king. I'm talking about a righteous person. I'm talking about one who has come to do the will of God and bring in the last things. And you you Romans, you come in here too because we're talking about a divine ruler. We're talking about one who has the right to rule over all things. What well, John said a little bit by just saying that, didn't he? To bring these things in and ascribe to him this idea of a son of God. And indeed, these are the implications. And in fact, what John does as he develops this through his gospel, John establishes the divine trinity. Because in assigning Jesus' sonship, but then declaring him to be equal with God, I don't know if you notice there, but in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, and that's where he uses the word again, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So he puts him side by side there in heaven. And then he develops this later, and then later on what uh, John is going to reveal in chapter 14 is that Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to send you another like me, another helper to be with you. And he begins to speak and expound over a couple chapters about the Holy Spirit. And so John has established the Trinity. And people will scoff and say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And it says, well, read the Gospel of John and pay attention. It's clearly there. But we'll get there later. There are some difficulties with this idea of Jesus being the Son of God. And I think it's important for us to take a look at that. Because these are not without some objections. In the Old Testament, of course, I mentioned Son of God refers to kings, heavenly beings, or the nation Israel. In the New Testament, Son of God is, refers not only to Jesus, but also to believers in Christ. In fact, right there in John chapter 1, it says, to those that received him, that believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what does John do? How does John make sure that when he calls Jesus the Son of God, that he means something particular and unique to him. He uses a word, monogenes. Everyone say monogenes. Now you're no longer afraid of it, right? And I've been sneaking it in there in Greek text in the top of the screen there this whole while that we've been doing this. It's over on the right-hand side there. This word monogenes, and it means one and only, Okay. Now, some of you might have open on your lap the King James Version of the Bible, and you'll say, no, 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 it means only begotten. Let me help you with that. Um, the formation of this word monogenes in our recent history has gone from being translated often as only begotten to being translated as one and only or unique son or something of that nature. And the reason is very simply this. We have learned more since the King formation of the King James Bible and some of the earlier other English translations, we have received more and more manuscripts and other things that have shown us that what we thought was a word from the root meaning only and the root meaning to beget or to give rise to um, and, and bringing it together in meaning only begotten, we found note that's much more likely that it is the word for only and it is this word <sighs> Genos, which is 
meaning kindred or kind or sort. In other words, one of a kind. Now this has, you know, the, the traditional form has a difficulty, like when you get to something like Hebrews eleven seventeen. Hebrews eleven seventeen is a particular problem for those who say it should be only begotten. And here's why. In Hebrews eleven seventeen it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. This is that same word, monogenes. And the problem with that is you go back and you read the Old Testament account, and you find, in fact, Isaac was not Abraham's only son. He had already had Ishmael. And so the question arises, okay, is the Old Testament account wrong, or is the New Testament account wrong, or are we misunderstanding what this word means? If the word means only unique son, then we've got something that we can live with. We've got something that eliminates the contradiction because Isaac was unique versus Ishmael because he was the son of promise. And that's the point made in the context here of Hebrews chapter 11. He was special because it was to be the offspring of Abraham and Sarah that was going to be the one through whom the Messiah would ultimately come. So he is the only unique. So after we discovered more evidence and and brought more manuscripts to bear on the issue, we, we believe that this means one and only, or unique. And this certainly fits the context better. And so in the context of John chapter 1, when John is speaking of and introducing Jesus to us, he uses this and he uses it twice. And in fact, he uses it elsewhere in his gospel that we'll get to in a little bit. Now in the New Testament, where else is this word monogenes used? Well, it's used in Luke three times when Luke is speaking of someone who has an only son. So the word can be used in that way that it suggests it's just an only son. And it's like, well, okay, well, how do we know he wasn't using it for Jesus that way? Well, he was. He was saying that he was the only son. And when he says that, in light of all these other passages that speak of other sons of God, John is saying this is a unique one. This one's distinct. This one is only. And of Jesus, this word is used five times by John, four times in his gospel, one time in his first letter, and there it's used in the book of Hebrews to refer to Isaac, who, as we know, in that whole story, is a typology of Christ. So what's the benefit of John using this word? Well, the benefit of him using this word is that it causes us then to to understand that he is speaking to something unique, something one of a kind. It separates Jesus from being any of these other options, like a just a created heavenly being, like the other Elohim that are in God's divine counsel, or just being a righteous person. And as the Bible often does then, what John what it shows us John is doing here is John is taking something that his audience knows. They know of a son of God concept. And what the Bible often does is it looks into the world and it it sees what's around. Oh, okay, you have this idea of a son of God. 
I'm going to take that idea, I'm going to bring it, set it before you, and I'm going to add to it to help explain Jesus. And so he brings in, okay, you have this idea of a son of God, you Romans and, and you Jews. I'm going to bring it in here and set it before you, and I'm going to say something. There's a unique, particular son of God that I'm telling you about. Now what we saw in Luke is that the word itself doesn't convey this. The word by itself does not convey the uniqueness of Christ above any divine or human persons. But the fact that when John uses it, in the context in which he's using it, he's explaining other unique qualities of Christ. And you wonder why there's so many different denominations and so many different interpretations of the the Bible and various passages. It's simply this, people aren't paying attention to the context. If you take monogenes, you look at what John puts around the word, you find, okay, well, he's clearly saying something unique that only applies to Jesus. Would you like me to show you? We'll just take this right in order going through his gospel. And here's what we see. In John 1.14, you notice, word became flesh, okay? and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son. That, that is the word that we're looking at here. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this we see he is uniquely glorious. He uniquely carries the glory of God. He uniquely is full of grace and truth. He's contrasted to Moses. If you would ask the common Jew about Moses, they'd go, oh, you know, greatest, greatest forefather we have. Many of them would vote him top, you know, right up there with David and maybe Abraham. And through Moses came the divine law and everything and all those things. And he's contrasting him to Moses, saying, hey, we got the law through Moses, but through this guy, we got grace and truth. In verse 18, he uniquely reveals God. He says very plainly, no one's ever seen God. But he goes, but this one and only, the monogenes I mentioned back there in verse 14, he says, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. And the implication is there'll be no greater revelation of God. There'll be no more vivid image of God than will be the imager who was the Son of God himself. Later in John's Gospel in chapter 3, a famous passage, the word appears twice in this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he gave this unique Son, this one Son, that prevents the perishing for those who believe. It goes on to say in verse 17, as he adds to this idea, he says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Do you see you can't, you can't insert in this sons of God generally and it make any sense at all? He's not saying that you're condemned already because you don't believe in the sons of God. And you're like, I just read the Old Testament. I know who the sons of God are. It's, it's, it's David and some of the other kings, and it's these divine beings. Yeah, I got that. What do you mean I don't believe it? 
No, you don't believe in the one and only, the unique Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he gives this eternal life to all who believe. And he spares the perishing and the condemnation to all who believe. So there's the four occurrences of it in his gospel. He mentions this one more time in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, when he speaks of love. And he ends verse 5 this way. He says, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So uniquely, he is the one that actually models the perfect love of God by bringing eternal life. He's the perfect expression of God, as we saw in John chapter 1. He is the perfect model for us to follow, as he will say in John chapter 15, 13, 14, all through that passage. He is the perfect model that one should follow, that one should be as an adopted son of God as we are. And then he says, if, if love, his, he is the perfect expression of love in John 3.16. He so loved the world that he sent Jesus. He's the perfect expression of love and that he does everything that the Father says. And he defines love as obedience and charges us to love one another. And then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, just as he kept the Father's. In the passage about the vine and the branches, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you see how John can come along and say, you know what, God is love and his love is in this, that he sent Jesus. Because Jesus displayed the perfect love, his perfect obedience to the Father on our behalf. And then finally, Later in chapter 15, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Do you see how all this is beginning to wrap together? He's the unique son of God in that he uniquely and perfectly displays the love of God in the actions that he did, in his obedience to the Father, in his going to the cross to pay the price for our sins. This is what John means when he says, Son of God. He means that he has come. Don't look for another. If you want to talk about redemption, here it is. This unique Son of God. If you're talking about the recreation the restoring of all things to Edenic purposes and Edenic conditions, this is the one who does it. He came so that those who believe have life, and he will return and gather together his own. And every human being will have to give an account on what they did concerning his words. How can there be any other significant son of God? How can there be any other way to heaven? How can there be any other true religion? If indeed Jesus says this, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You say, oh, that's good news. Thank you, Jesus. But then he goes on. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. How can he say that? Unless he is the singular, appointed, one and only Son of God. Completely, eternally one with God and yet come in the flesh to perfectly fulfill the will of God upon the earth and to lay down his life for all who believe. All will have to give an account according to the words Jesus said, including his claims to be the Son of God. It's so clear. Why would everyone have to give an account concerning Jesus' words? Why would everyone have to give an account because of this one who came? Because he obviously fulfills all that John claims. In fact, John even sets this up. That the only reason we would read the Gospel of John and not believe is found right there in the context of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Remember he uses the word monogenes there twice? He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Now pay attention. This is, this is harsh. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You want to know why not everyone is convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? It's not because they've not received enough information. It's not because they've not received the gospel preached to them. It's because they have seen enough of the light that God has put into the world to turn from it because of their sin, because they prefer their sin over the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John is plainly saying here. This is, in fact, he is accounting the words of Jesus here. So this is what Jesus plainly says. And so that becomes an opportunity we must examine our own hearts and say, if I have resisted the supremacy of Christ in any way, if I have resisted him being worthy of all my worship and all my attention and being a priority in my life, is it because I love my sin and my way of life more than I love him? And if I love myself and my life more than I love him, could I possibly be one of his? And we ought to continually examine ourselves when confronted with this truth. But what we must do when we come to that and we find ourselves doubting and we find ourselves wondering, gee, am I not even one of those sons of God then? The proper response is to beg him. To beg him. There was a, uh, a man whose son was demon-possessed. And he was throwing himself down. And he was throwing him in this child, the demon, in him, was causing him to throw himself down into fire. 
And this man brings a child to the disciples of Jesus because Jesus was up on a mountain with three of his disciples, but the rest of them were down at a camp and they came to the camp and and he he comes and, and brings his son to them and they could not cast this demon out. And the disciples tried. And they tried invoking the name of Jesus to throw it out and everything else. Well, Jesus comes down off the mountain. He goes, what's going on here? And they're like, hey, this guy brought this demon and, and we just, you know, this demon-possessed boy and we can't do anything about it. And he says, well, all things are possible with faith. That's that word, believe, that John keeps throwing around. And the man looked at Jesus and he said, I believe... Help my unbelief. He begged Jesus. He goes, I believe, but apparently not enough. And that's what we do when we come to the scriptures and we see Jesus is the Son of God, and then we realize, I'm not quite living a life that looks like I'm really following this Son of God. We appeal to him himself, and we say, I believe. Will you please help my unbelief? I believe, but obviously not enough to get over this, this issue I'm dealing with. Or I believe not enough to, to put down some of the things of this world and take up your cross and follow you. I believe, but not enough to make a commitment to ministry, a commitment to my church, or, or a commitment to the next step with you, or to meet you in prayer daily, or to see you in your word. I believe, but not enough. Because if indeed it's faith that brings us to him, it's faith that grows us in him. And you'll find that to be true in the New Testament. What we must do is to beg him to help us with our unbelief so that indeed we may believe. Well, we've got some encouragements along with that here that we want to take a look at. First of all, simply this. The only Son of God inherits the kingdom and shares it with whom he desires. That all things will come to an end cannot be in doubt because it's hinging upon him, the only Son of God who did the will of the Father perfectly, who perfectly reveals his love, who perfectly reveals the judgment of God. In fact, the Bible says that all judgment's been given into his hands. And therefore we know without a doubt that all that the Bible says about a time when he will separate the, the righteous from the wicked and that he will establish righteousness upon the earth and he will take all he will wipe away all tears. He will take away all disease and death and suffering. He will take away all wars and famines. And he will take away all the evildoers from the presence of those who believe. We must not be in doubt about it. Because he is the monogenes. He is the one and only son of God who will fulfill it perfectly. And as this unique son of God, he will not fail. And if you call upon his name, he will not fail you. He will respond. If you turn to him in faith and you say, I believe some, but help my unbelief, he will answer that prayer. Because after all, didn't he say that whatever we ask in his name, he'll do? And in his name means according to his will. Does he want you to believe? Does he want you to be saved? Does he want you to come to him? 
Well, go to him and find out. And then third encouragement here, where men have failed, where the Elohim of the Old Testament failed, where even angels have failed, he will succeed, so we don't need to seek another. Here he is. We can stop playing religion roulette, spinning the wheel and seeing where we go next and what we learn next. No, it's right here. It's in the Word of God, and it's presented. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We don't have to wonder if there's something else. We don't have to to wonder what is the truth because the gospel is utterly unique among the world religions. And everywhere that there's a contrast between the truth of the gospel and the error of a false religion It is the person of Jesus Christ that makes that difference. And we don't have time to go through those things, but I challenge you to think about them. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who makes the singular difference between this and all other manners of faith. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you so much this word through your servant John there's so much we appreciate about his understanding of the truth the way that you moved the spirit to have him put it together and write it down Lord is fascinating to us and and captivates the imagination and challenges us and Lord where it has challenged us we understand that the one and only Son of God deserves our perfect obedience and allegiance, that he indeed is worthy of it, that, Lord, that would be the very least we could offer, would be to obey his commands, and, Lord, indeed, as you defined it, that would be love for us to obey him. So, Lord, I pray this day in all such ways as we fall short, Lord, it is a lack of faith. It is a lack of belief in who Jesus Christ is, and I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith all the more And as Jesus had mercy upon this man and healed his son of this demon at his request for more faith, we believe that when we come to you lacking faith and we ask to have our cup filled, that you will fill it to overflowing because indeed it is your will that all who believe, Lord, shall be kept and shall be risen up at the last day. So, Lord, we implore you this day to help us where we fall short. Help us with our unbelief. Encourage us by drawing our attention to the greatness that is the one and only Son of God. This unique one who came and presented himself an offering for sin in our place. Pray that you'll take each and every one of us to the next level in our faith walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.